Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been disappointed? Like really disappointed? I can remember back to a time when some of you were not born. It was called 1992. And in 1992, I was highly disappointed by something. It was around this time when what is known as the greatest basketball game to ever be played was played against the Kentucky Wildcats of this great commonwealth versus the rightful name Blue Devils, Duke. We had watched for a season as the untouchables had played these Kentucky boys, all except for one, their starting five, were all from right here in Kentucky. And we had watched, as a young 14-year-old, had watched almost every single game that year in anticipation that in March Madness, which we are coming to, which Kentucky will not be anywhere near this, <laughs> as Kentucky would be in the... The, the finals leading up to who would make it to the final four. It was the most amazing game. It went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And with seven seconds, somewhere around seven seconds, Sean Woods, the Kentucky player, drove down the lane and did this little floater over the Christian Lake. Score is now 103 to 102. There is somewhere around 2.1 seconds left on the clock. Grant Hill is at one end of the court. He's given the ball. Coach K gives him the ball. Practically tells him to launch it down the court. Grant Hill throws this absolutely Tom Brady perfect pass. To the devil, I mean to Christian later. <laughs> and somehow, in the midst of in 2.1 seconds, this man is able to then grab that ball, all right, fake one way, dribble, and turn and shoot. I cried that day. <laughs> because they cheated and the rest were in on it. <laughs> there was the thrill of the win in my family's den. It's now my, my wife and I's bedroom at my parents' house, but it used to be called the den. We don't call those things. That's weird. Got a den at your house? Yeah, it's where the bears live. It's weird. Okay? But at that time, we called it the den. Anybody else have a den? Like, yeah, if your mama had a living room, you couldn't step on the carpet in there. Right? It always looked like it had been vacuumed. Right? Couldn't step on those lines and mess up those lines. But you could go in the den. You could have drinks in the den. Anybody follow me? We were all crowded in that room. Seven seconds left. Sean Woods, boom! Kentucky is going to the final 
after two years would have been suspended, we couldn't go because of Sutton and all that stuff. <laughs> A lot can happen in seven seconds. Huge disappointment. I remember just being consumed. It was like, this is terrible. I mean, it probably took me days to get over that Kentucky loss. And I still can't stand Christian Leitner. Or Duke, for that matter. People who were born and raised in Kentucky and root for Duke, they're just something anti-Christ about that. <laughs> or North Carolina, Pastor Chester. I mean, just huge disappointment. I've told you guys this before. That's why I've started all my other teams are terrible. And I'm a better man because of it. Because I have no expectation that the Bears or the Mets or Kentucky this year are going to do any good at all. We are terrible. You know, disappointment is something that can really consumes us. It can consume us emotionally, physically, all, all of these sorts of things. See, disappointment happens at somewhere in the intersection of expectation and your actual experience, doesn't it? We expect one thing. We experience something completely different from that. Every time that I agree to marry people, um, I always tell them that I... I um, I will not marry you unless you let me preach the gospel at your marriage ceremony. And likewise, that you have to go through this long process of uh, what is typically called premarital counseling. But I always tell them, I'm not doing marriage. I don't do premarital counseling. I do marriage counseling because the same problems that I'm going to tell you about today are the exact same problems that you're going to have 30 years from now. And in that, one of the things that I often talk about is this mis- um, or, or really improper expectations on that husband or wife. Can I get an amen? You believe something about them, and then you live with them. All of them. And somewhere between your expectations and your experience, your actual reality, there is often great disappointment. And this is where Moses stands. If I had for you today a sermon and a sentence, it would be this. We must trust Jesus, his goodness, and his goodness, even when our obedience leads us to disappointment as a result of earthly trouble. Let me read that again. We, we must trust Jesus and his goodness even when our obedience leads to disappointment as a result or as we experience earthly trouble. The text. Inside of what I've just read, the last part there of chapter 4, we greatly appreciate Pastor Justin leading us last week, teaching us last week on, on, on um, Jesus, our mediator. And, and from that, we learn that, that Moses, again, he is sent from the land of Midian. Go, go back to Egypt. Tell them to let my people go. 
I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. Um, but eventually, you keep telling him to let my people go, do all these signs and wonders, throw down a stick, right? Pull your hand out, all, all of those sorts of things. And the Bible tells us in the passage that I just read in chapter 4 that Moses went back. He told Aaron what had happened. Aaron probably hadn't seen him in about 40 years. He shows them all the signs and wonders, and then they go to the people of Israel and the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the people of Israel, and they tell them, hey, God has declared, he has visited with us, he has said that he's going to deliver us from the hands of our oppressor, and that these are the signs and wonders to prove that we have met with God. And the Bible tells us there in the end of chapter 4 that that's exactly what happened. That, that Moses told them that. He did the signs and wonders. And then what did the people do? They bowed their heads and worshipped. They worshipped God. Again, 400 something years of slavery and bondage under this pagan polytheistic Man believed that he was God. And yet, God whispers through these men and through these miracles, through these signs and wonders, that the deliverer has come. So we see inside the very beginning there of chapter 5, afterward, that means afterward, Moses, what does he do? He goes to the throne room of the most powerful man on the planet. And he says to him, or them, let my people go. Now, inside the original language here, one of the things that's missed in our English translation is the boldness and the confidence that he goes from, right? He has visited with God. He's had the burning bush. He's done signs and wonders in the name of God. The people are behind him after all these years of feeling like he is an absolute failure. He goes to Pharaoh with his, his, his band of brothers, his actual DNA brother, Aaron. They stand before him and says, Pharaoh, you let God's people go. Who, who is this? God, did you speak of? Now, I would, I would, it's a conjecture, but I, I would say that, that Pharaoh is well aware of the God of the Israelites. It's more of a, a sarcastic play on the words. Again, there are many gods inside the world, Pharaoh being one of them, and yet he, he is not moved at the shaking of the I am, the, the Yahweh, the I am that I am, the great God creator, the, the God of all gods is who Moses has visited with. And when, 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 when Moses says to Pharaoh, this guy right here, his response is complete ignorance. What's nothing to do with this guy? There's no way. I'm God. Moses and Aaron plead with him, hey, just give us a few days in the woods. Just give us a few days out in the desert to sacrifice and to worship Yahweh, to worship the great I Am. Now, inside of history, inside of archaeology, don't have time to go into this and nerd out on this today, but you can find that this was probably a pretty common, actually a pretty common practice. There's even like Sanskrit and all these sorts of things, hieroglyphics that kind of point 
to this kind of policy that even slaves within the Egyptian kind of con uh, kingdom, that they were often allowed to go and worship their gods. So the, the initial ask here isn't something that's very strange. It's very common. What's uncommon is that Pharaoh would not allow them to do it. Who is this Lord? That's the single biggest question of all the Bible. Pharaoh asked the question that Genesis to Revelation is trying to answer for all of humanity for all time. Who is this Lord? It is the same question, friend, brother, sister, person watching, believer, non-believer, that the Bible demands a response from you and I to answer that question. Who is the Lord? And the God of the Bible says over and over and over again, I am this God. And he distinguished himself time and time and time and time again. So who is this Lord? From there, he goes on and he punishes them, right? He calls them lazy. He calls them lazy and it demands that they do the same amount of work. But now, instead of providing the straw, they have to go out, find the straw, harvest the straw, bring the straw in. And if they you know, have to make a million bricks in a day or whatever, then they are still required to make those same bricks. Well, this causes, again, major problems. So what do the Israelites do? The foremen do for the Israelites. They go back to Pharaoh. No, like Pharaoh, like we, we can't get this done. Pharaoh's response is, wait, you're lazy. And you've got to continue to do and produce the same amount of bricks that we're not going to provide the straw. You go provide the straw. This is the punishment. You're lazy. So you go get the straw, harvest the straw, bring the straw back, then make all the bricks. The expectation is the same. They continue to complain and yet what this Pharaoh have done to the foreman? He hasn't beaten. So what does the Bible tell us that the foreman do? The Israelites foreman, again, they go to Pharaoh. They're beaten. They ask. And so after they're getting beaten, they, they come and they walk out of the throne room. And who's sitting there? Moses and Aaron. They're leaders. The ones who have visited with God. The one who have done these miraculous signs and wonder. And notice what they say. And they said, waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge. So they say, and they ask, they curse Moses and Aaron, they literally say, may God damn you. That's the strength of what's happening here. And, they keep, and judge you because you have made us stink. You have made us repulsive to the Pharaoh and to his servants. They're going to kill us. They're going to beat us. Right? And yet the Bible goes on in this verses 22 and the following, and we see Moses' response, don't we? Let's read that again really quickly. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, 
O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So Moses responds, as you would, as I would. Yahweh, hey, the Lord, the great I am, you just said that you're going to deliver your people. Why? Why, God? Isn't that the question that so many of us are asking? Isn't that the question that so many people in our world are asking? It's the same question that, that Moses is asking. He's like, why, God? Why is this taking place? Moses, in this moment, what does he do? He, I mean, he doubts God's goodness. He doubts God's plan. He, he, he doubts what God has said to him. He doubts God's word. God, you brought me here. And it's gone from bad to worse. You brought me here. It's just got worse for me. But Moses isn't completely selfish. He, you made it worse on these people. Like we could have just lived the rest of our lives out in the middle of the desert. They could have just been slaves for a whole lot longer. But, but instead, now, now we're being beaten even more and we're having the expectation of doing even more work. Why are you doing this, God? This just isn't fair. From there, I want to ask you this question. I think I have a slide for you guys on this. It says this. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is the root of my disappointment with God? Being disappointed over a ball game, it's real. But we can all, in retrospect, thinking back to 1992, like as disappointed as I was that day, I've had a lot of life since that moment, and that doesn't carry near as much weight as it once did. <clears throat> but we are not talking about a disappointment toward an object of low value. We are talking about real, honest, authentic disappointment with the God whom you say that you serve. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? But as we ask ourselves, why am I really upset at God? Why am I really disappointed with God? It, it, it starts out with asking this question. Am I disappointed with God out of disobedience? Or am I disappointed with God out of obedience? And you've got to understand that those are two very distinct things. See, oftentimes we get disappointed with God um, because... We want God to bless our disobedience, and then when he doesn't, we become disappointed with him, right? 
Anybody ever done that before? Lord Jesus. See that blonde hair, blue eyed girl over there in my English class? Make her trip and fall in my lap. I hear she loves Jesus. I love Jesus. But I ain't got the courage to ask her out, so I need a sign. Doesn't happen. But more so than that sort of thing. I'm talking about actually asking the God. We become upset at God, disappointed with God, because we're, we're wanting Him to bless some sort of sinful disobedience inside of our lives. So, Lord, I'm, I'm going to commit my life to my work. I'm going to devote myself to my business, to my job. I, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. And, and we just live this life proclaiming with our lips that we follow after God and yet for daily obedience is void and yet what do we ask God to do? Bless my business. It's the expectation, right? It's the not studying for the test but then right before you take the test, Lord Jesus, help me take this test. Time and time again, We want the Lord to bless our disobedience. We want him to bless our sin. We don't want him to catch us, which is another form of blessing, right? We want that to take place. Like the foreman, notice that, that when, when, when more pain and more sorrow came to the Israelites, where did the foreman run? Did they run to God? Did they cry out to God? They notice this, don't miss it. They ran to the very one who was enslaving them, expecting a different result. They ex expected blessing from someone who was not blessing them. Isn't it Peter who would say, like a dog returning to his vomit? I love my dog, Preacher. That's his name. He, I mean, I just absolutely am obsessed with this dog. He's better than all your dogs, I'm sorry. That's a humble brag. I just absolutely love this dog. But that dude is gross. He does things that are inappropriate. With an old English bulldog, you have to feed them with a certain type of bulb. Have y'all seen these slow eating bulbs? It's a flat bulb, but it's got all these like waves in it. And it makes the dog slow down in their eating. We didn't have that bowl at first. And so every time we would feed Preacher, he would vomit up his food. And then it would magically disappear. <laughs> that is disgusting. <clears throat> and yet, ladies and gentlemen, how many of us have returned to the sins of our past, hoping that they will bring a freedom and a numbness and a newness that they didn't bring the first time? 
Some of our disappointment toward God is disappointment that is birthed out of obedience. I mean, excuse me, disobedience. But that's not what's taking place here. See, we often become, in our sin, disappointed with God because of his timing, right? We become disappointed with God because of his plan, right? But that's not what's taking place inside of Moses' ministry in this moment. Has Moses gone AWOL? Has Moses gone off on his own path that he's going to later on in some Exodus? And it's going to cause some major problems. But, but right now, it's, it's, it's God, whatever do you want me to do? And what is Moses doing? He's being a good minister, a good shepherd, a good leader, a good pastor, a good deliverer. And he, he does exactly. He goes from a few chapters before questioning everything that God has told him to do to now doing it boldly, confidently, going into the very throne room of a man that could snap his finger and have him put to death at any moment. And yet, Moses stands before Pharaoh with his brother, and he says, Let my people go. In the name of Yahweh, in the name of God, let my people go. And what happens inside of this passage? The end of chapter 4, they go from worshiping to the end of chapter 5 with Moses going, why? From the worship to why? Sometimes our disappointment with God is birthed out of obedience. And that is really tough. Moses does exactly what God has called him to do. And what happens? It gets much, much worse. The more obedience Moses is, the more obedient that Moses is, guess what happens? The worse that it gets. Not only for him, but also for everybody around him. Do you understand what I'm stepping in today? Have you ever been disappointed with God because you've actually been living obedience, in obedience? And it's not that it all is bad, but that, that, that there is a lot of bad in it. A lot of heartache in it. I mean, think about this. This has been the mark of Christendom. And this is the stuff that isn't often preached. And again, it's not because we're better. I, I often do not want to preach the way that I'm about to preach to you today because it's much more popular to, to skip over these sorts of passages. But we have are growing up in a generation that is forgetting even Jesus' own command that if you're going to follow after me, you've got to take up your cross, you've got to pick up your electric chair and follow after me. You've got to die on this. I'm sending you out like sheaves to wolves. Take heart. You're going to experience much trouble. Hey, if they hated me, they are surely going to hate you. And yet somehow inside the scripture and inside of church history, what we see over and over and over again, young men, young women, old men, old women burning at the stake. All the disciples, except for John, right, die this horrific, 
martyr's death. They were so convinced that Jesus was Lord, so convinced in his resurrection, that, that even in their obedience, what's the outcome? What's the earthly outcome? Beheaded, speared to death, stoned, drunk behind a chariot, all of these terrible, terrible things. You talk about a marketing plan. If the church acted like Apple, imagine every six months we told you, hey, we were missing something there. Got to change the cord on you again. Again. And then again, again. What if the church, is our marketing campaign was that every six months uh, we explain to our members, hey, in six months from now, some of you are going to be put to death in persecution like blank. And then six months later, like this now. We sit here and it's hard for us to understand because we, we, we don't experience much, if at all, any of that inside of American Western Christianity. This is Christianity. God has not changed. His mission has not changed. The question is, are we living in disobedience or obedience? Now, I don't think that's what we need to get down here on our knees today at altar call and say, Lord Jesus, bring persecution. But if you talk to our friends in Niger, Africa, they will often tell their white brothers and sisters, please don't pray that God will remove our persecution. Because if we do, we'll become disobedient. What do you do? How many people in the Reformation were burned alive? How many missionaries just have these horrible stories? Is there a blessing? Absolutely. I couldn't help but think earlier this morning about Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a believer. He was called by God. He prepared for like three years with a group of his buddies to go minister to these indigenous people that had never heard the gospel. And I think it was around 1957, him and his buddies, they got on the plane, they went there, they, they trained, I mean, they learned languages, they come up with all these, comp, you know, they would drop off these buckets to these indigenous people, they learned a few words of like, like I don't know, we love you, or hello, or you know, these, these pleasantries. They then swooped down and picked one of them up. They, they built a relationship with one of them, and they, 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 they got him to, to get on a plane. And so imagine this indigenous person who's never seen any technology is now on an airplane flying around the jungle. They land, him and his buddies, they end up like uh, camping there for a few days, and they keep trying to get this indigenous people group to come. And after four days, they see this like man and woman like coming in one direction. And the turn, and the warriors from that indigenous group kill Doesn't that just make you go like, wow? Can't you imagine his wife, Elizabeth Elliot? All this preparation, all this planning, God, we're going to do your will. And they go and do it. 
And you've essentially been there four days and you're dead. It's hard to look at the Apostle Paul's life without it not reflecting that of Moses' as well. How many times, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is where, where Paul lays out in the New Testament all the bad stuff that's happened to him. Like he'd been shipwrecked, left for dead, drove behind a chariot, snake bit. Snake bit would have done most of you in. All right? I had this professor in my doctoral work when we were studying that passage in the life of Paul, he looked at our class, and I've preached an entire sermon on this before, but he looked at our class and he says, here's the real deal. If you follow Jesus, then show me your back. Because you don't truly follow Jesus without having a lot of scars. But American Christianity has a tendency of wanting a Christianity without any scars. Moses stands before the Lord. He's like, I'm doing what you want me to do. This week, I start my 19th year of full-time ministry. It took less than six months when I was 23 years of age serving in this church we started, I stepped into a situation that I was not prepared for. We started having all these pastors do all kinds of like scandalous things. I started in March, and by May, I spent most of my days in my office bawling my eyes out, asking, What in the heck have I done? I have ruined my life. I have ruined my wife's life. Am I called? Can I do this? All while trying to be obedient. God, why, why is this taking place? And disappointment as a pastor, and to show you some insight into that, because we've created earthly metrics of, of success for churches. We take business models, and we apply those to the church, and if this is successful for Chick-fil-A, or whatever, then we must understand that if we apply these same principles to the church, that this is what success is. So we, we say things like this inside of, the, the, inside of the church that, that we measure our success on, I'll, I'll use this word, bottoms, buildings, and budgets. The more bottoms you have in your seat, well, that's success. You're doing something right. Buildings. Do you have a building? How big is that building? How much square foot is that building? How nice is that building? Do you have a black wall on that building, or is the black wall from the pits of hell itself? <laughs> Budgets. How much money is this church bringing in? 
Man, that must be really nice for our brothers and sisters because I think that you can be faithful and, and, and be you know, a, a, a brother and sister inside of a large church. I don't think that large churches are the devil, all right? We've been all blessed by many of them. What about the guy who doesn't have those things? And on Sunday afternoons, it's a terrible time to talk to your pastor or pastors. Because that is typically when the hiss of the enemy is at its loudest about what you did or did not, or who did or did not come, or what was and was not given on that morning. God, why? Why? The next question is this. How will you respond to disappointment with God? How are you going to respond to disappointment with God? And I I used, uh, I learned something from Pastor Todd here. Got three A's. He's really good at that. I'm not. But for memory's sake, helping you to be teachable, help you be a uh, a good student today. These were the responses that, that, that I seem to be prevalent in my own life, but also in pastoral ministry. When you become, when I become disappointed with God, uh, many times one of the first responses is this, is that we become angry. People become angry at God, right? They become disappointed again with his plan, with his process, with his timing. I often think about my, my single friends who I, I love and they, they desire to be married and yet they're, they're getting older and older and older and they're, and they're wondering, you know, God, why? Why isn't this happening? I'm trying to be obedient here. I, I'm doing it the way that you know I'm supposed to do it. I kiss dating goodbye. I'm waiting on that godly man to come pursue me because that's what the church has told me to do is wait for a godly man to pursue you. And you wait, 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 and you're asking the question, why God, why God, why God? And you, you shake your fist, you're just mad. You're, you're mad at the suffering that you've endured. You're, you're mad at the, the sin of other people. You're, you're, you're mad at that your, your kids are messed up, or your foster kids are messed up, or your adoption's not going right, or, or your marriage is rocky. You get angry. Does anybody get angry in here? I can't tell you how many people that I've ministered to that are angry with God, bitter with God. Because the death of a because of the death of a loved one. They took you took them too soon. Right? Anybody been there? You know people like that? How could you ever do that? So one of the responses is that we become angry. But have you ever thought about anger toward God, disappointment toward God in this way? There's this great book, and Todd, I've got this big long quote here. 
If you need a book that goes well with what I'm talking about today in regards to disappointment with God, John Kostler, The Surprising Grace of Dis- Disappointment, is it's great. It's biblically sound. I could have quoted it over and over and over again here today, but I did steal this one from him. How about this kind of anger? Sooner or later, and probably it's sooner than later, sooner rather than later, what God does is so at odds with our expectation that we hardly know what to think. We pray for healing and the patient dies. The job that seems so perfect for us goes to someone else. That the person would have been perfect life partner does not return our affection. The resulting crisis is more than a crisis of faith, faith, at least not in the way that we usually define faith. Our difficulty is not that we have set the bar so high that we must now come to terms with God's inability to come through for us. The problem is that is just the opposite. We know what God can do. We believe that he can live up to our high expectations. Neither is this a matter of mere miscommunication. We are not troubled because we have misread the signals. What really bothers us is that we have misread the sender. We are deeply disturbed, not merely because God has failed to do what we wanted him to do, not even that he failed to do what we expected him to do. We are haunted, get this, we are haunted by the fact that God hasn't done what we know in our hearts that he should have done. God, if you're good, is God good? Yes. God, if you're good, then, then, then heal my grandmama of cancer. God, if you're good, fix, fix my marriage. God, we're trying to do it right. And yet we're still having all of these problems. Isn't it the most awkward thing when somebody, you ever get those text messages, hey God, we really need you to pray right now. Anybody anybody ever sent those text messages before? Anybody ever got those text messages before? Come on now. Okay, right now. We need prayer warriors, all the saints, all my brothers and sisters. Like, it's death on 20. We have gone to phase two here. This whole thing is about to blow up, whatever it may be. We need prayer right now. We need everybody to unite with us in prayer over this. Seek the Lord. Seek Him with all of your might. We need unity. We even say things like, I agree with those prayers, Jesus. Heal this person. Work in this person's life. Bring this part of the child home. Isn't it? And then God doesn't do it. Anybody ever disappointed with God over unanswered prayers? You're not asking for a Corvette. You're God asking God to heal somebody. Moses is doing what is right here. He is doing what God has told him to do. He is fulfilling his calling. Magic tricks and all. And they ask God to damn the leader.
The second response is abandonment, isn't it? A lot of times, pastors, missionaries, members, they get really on fire for God. They get really called up into something. Man, we're going to start this prayer ministry. We're going to start this. 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 And the attendance is low. Somebody gets mad at us because we're doing, you go to pass out tracks and people are like, bah humbug, and they throw it on the ground, right? You ever passed out tracks before in a parking lot? And then you go back through the parking lot later and you just see all the Jesus like trash everywhere. People just toss, oh, thank you, yeah, <laughs> because we're in the South. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take that out. Yeah, I'll just, right? You go over to the trash can, it's just full of all the tracks. When the mission gets tough, many of us will quit. How many of you have ever been like this? If God is in this, then it will be easy. Automatically, when it goes bad, we blame who? Someone else or the devil. It's kind of demon, isn't it? Right? The enemy just doesn't want this to happen. See? That was worked out. Sorry. Joke's on you, see? <laughs> In that, what if it goes bad from your perspective? And it's the hand of God. Justin can tell you, I think Todd was in that room as well. When we first planted Mission Church, I looked at a group of young men, including myself, then I had hair a little bit. And I looked at these young men who were planting Mission Church, and I said, this is going to be the hardest thing we ever do. Only two of those men are still here. Now, they're faithfully serving in another church. They haven't abandoned God. Okay, but when it got tough here, man, it's just it's just easy to find something else, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm so prone to do that. COVID, I mean, I had many moments. It's like, I don't know why I keep doing this. Like talking to a camera. If I want to be a TV evangelist, I could have been. I need $64 million for a plane. Right? <laughs> kind of TV evangelist. We abandoned the mission. And that's one thing. But so many other people, when they get really disappointed with God, they abandon God themselves. One of the major reasons, or some of the major reasons, that, that people want nothing to do with God is they begin to ask such questions. And I think they're valid questions. Why is there so much sorrow? Why is there so much slavery? Why is there so much hurt? If God were good, then why is there so much evil in the world? Have you ever noticed how many people don't believe in the God of the Bible, but hate Him so much? For non-existent God, he gets a lot of hate. From research, most people want nothing to do with the God of the Bible due to these reasons. 
lack of answered prayer, something evil or bad happens in their life or to someone that they love. Thirdly, lack of what they believe to be tangible evidence. They haven't seen any physical burning bushes. What's scary about actually abandoning God, which is more dangerous than abandoning his mission, is that if you actually abandon God with your affections, with your belief, and with your obedience, it really means that you never knew him to begin with. We become disappointed with God in this moment because he isn't who we wanted him to be. But the revival... But the Bible over and over and over again promises, though he is not who we want him to be, the Bible promises us this. He is so much better. And that leads to this last A. The true response should be awe, even in your disappointment, even in my disappointment. Quickly, notice they go from worship to why. And I think at first glance, we get a little like, hey, Moses, hey, Mo, like, I don't know if you should be talking to the Lord like that. We, we peer into Moses' frustration with God, his disappointment with God, his discouraging. And, and we see from this worship to, to, to why. But, but ladies and gentlemen, I want you to, I hope you can see something that I feel like I saw really for the first time become very clear this week is like asking myself this question, but it's like, where else should Moses go with this? Should he be like the foreman and go to Pharaoh? See, I mean, if, if, if someone was to actually be like this in front of us, like what Moses is doing, we'd all be like, mm. <laughs> Lightning going to strike this brother. But that's not what takes place here. What, what we see is, is, is this right here. Is there possible, is there room in worship for you and I to struggle with the wise? Moses is still in awe, even though he is greatly disappointed in God. Awe has to do with worship. Moses runs to God. He has intimacy with God. He has fellowship with God. In the worship service, is not just about singing and seeing miracles and all those sorts of things, but the worship of God also includes just a very authentic burden passing over, asking God the, the tough questions of why, 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 why? I mean, what is prayer without the question why? Why, Moses? It, it tells us here in this verse, Moses turned to the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, what are you turning to? Moses turns 
to the Lord. He takes his petition to God. He mediates on behalf of the people. Moses goes from being scared to death at a burning bush and now goes straight to God. In the first of many moments of frustration and disappointment with God, as Moses is being obedient, we see an example of not running to self-help and worldly advice, but honest pleading, meeting, praying with God. The entire book of Psalms is filled with honest interaction with God about our feelings, about life, and about Him. The Psalms are filled with someone expressing great disappointment with God. When troubles come, brothers and sisters in Christ, we run, turn to God. There is... In the midst of worship, there must be in this gathering, but also in worship in your car, worship at your job, worship at your home, a safe place, a margin for worship to include the why. And God is not turned away, is he? His yoke is easy, his burden is light. He, he runs to you in that moment. We'll see next week. God's going to talk to Mo. He's going to have a conversation with Moses. Man. I'm going to save all I got left. I have to come back. It's a marathon here, not a sprint. So much more here. We'll pick that up next week. But I just, I, 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 some of you are being disappointed with God, and I, I want you to hear me this morning. You're disappointed with God, and it has no value to it. You're disappointed with Him because you're asking Him to bless your sin. However, there are some of you guys, and I want to pastor you in this moment. And you're really disappointed with God because you're being obedient and it's not having the results that you first expected them to have. Or even that the promises of God haven't been fulfilled yet. It's the room in your worship. It's the room in our worship mission church for that. Is a room in your original community where you can look at people and just say, I'm just not very happy with God right now. And yet we see in this example, and I'll talk more about this next week, we see in this example of Moses that he runs to the only one who can answer his deepest need. His deepest wants. The only one who can provide the hope and the care and the healing and the promise. He runs in all back to God. Because in worship there is this mixture of awe and great disappointment. And yet we see in the Bible, specifically the Psalms, that those two things don't have to be at odds with each other. That they don't have to be the enemy of the other. But that God in His holiness and His greatness can handle even your greatest of disappointments.
Let's pray. Lord.